Well, good morning and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. I would imagine you just opened up your eyes and were a little surprised to see who was standing up here in the front uh, this morning. Uh, My name is Ryan Martin and I am uh, both an elder here at Mount Calvary Church as well as on uh, staff as part-time worship leader. And I'm excited to be with you all this morning. This is what happens. Uh, Well, actually, let me back up. I'm convinced that Pastor Matt looked at the schedule this morning. He saw 1 Samuel 4 on the list and said, I have want no parts of this passage. You'll see why here in a minute. Uh, and so he then threw it out to all the other pastors who all, the, all of a sudden, they're all in Mexico. They're all, you know, they're on vacation. Nobody is available. And so they reached out to me and I didn't knowingly said, yeah, I'll take, I'll take care of it. And you'll see why I'm saying that here in a moment. But I am truly grateful uh, for the opportunity to, to be here today and to share with you. We are going to be in 1 Samuel 4. So if you want to grab uh, your Bible and turn there, that would be great. Um, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. And you know, with it being Father's Day, I thought I'd start with just a little story about my kids. So I have three kids that are nine, seven, and two and a half. And when my oldest two were a bit younger, maybe three and five, something like that, uh, we had our whole bedtime routine, right? We still have our bedtime routines, but back when they were in three and five years old, uh, the bedtime routine was we'd brush their teeth, we'd go to somebody's room, we'd probably pick up the Jesus Storybook Bible, we'd read a section, a passage from that. We would pray. We'd probably sing a song and then we'd all, we'd go our separate ways and go to bed. And what I mean by go, go our separate ways is I would take one of our kids to their room and my, my wife, Amanda, would take the other kid to their respective room and we would finish the process of tucking them into bed. And I don't know how, I mean, parents, you probably have like you thousands of images flood through your mind as you think about the bedtime routine. Um, I don't know how it goes in your house, uh, but in our house, Mom, my wife, Amanda, is the sympathetic, willing to talk, uh, gentle, compassionate, probably is the one who would allow you to get out of your bed to go get that drink that you just have to have because you've never been more thirsty in your life, right? And so naturally, our kids never wanted me to put them to bed. They always wanted mom to put them to bed. And uh, this is not me. That's not my personality, the same as my wife. And so, again, my kids just always want that. I can hear their little voices say, Mom, can you put me to bed? Right? I, I can hear that so vividly. But it got annoying. Like, I'm just being honest here. Like, it got annoying because what would happen is they would fight with each other about who is going to have Mom put them to bed. And so eventually, me being the not compassionate one said, that's it, we're done. If you ask that question, I'm the one that's gonna be putting you to bed. No more, we're not playing this game anymore. Now, I don't, this is one of those like, why did you do this as a parent kind of a moment? I don't know, but I guess, I guess it was so that we could spend some individual time with each kid as we were preparing, like getting, getting them ready for bed, that what we'd eventually decided, and I, I don't understand why we did this, but I, if, if one of us would, we would kind of share the responsibility. I would brush a kid's teeth and then I would take the opposite kid and put them in bed. So it's like you get time to spend with each one of them. Uh, so if I took my oldest, Abby, and I brushed her teeth, then that would mean that mom was gonna put Abby to bed. You can probably sense where this story here is going. That all of a sudden, my kids got smart, figured out that this was our miraculous plan that we had discovered, and I have never in my entire life been more popular than when it was time to go brush teeth, right? Like that my kids knew that if I was, if, if they wanted to get their desired outcome of mom putting them to bed, then they had no choice but to then try to convince me to be the one that was going to brush their teeth. And they did whatever was possible to try to make that kind of thing 
happen. And parents, I'm sure you can come up with a story of something where your kids wanted something and so they would manipulate the circumstances to try to make you give them uh, what they want. And kids, listen, I know some of you are in here this morning. If you think your parents can't see right through all of that, we can. Don't you worry. Um, we see right through all of that. But as I was thinking about that, aren't we still like that today, even as adults? That in, maybe we're not quite as blatant, but if there's something that's uncomfortable or challenging in our life or we have a desired outcome that we want, aren't we quick to try to manipulate a situation in our favor to try to get our desired outcome? I think we all do the same thing as my little children. And maybe manipulate sounds like a really strong word uh, to use to talk about trying to get your desired outcome, but I'm gonna stick with it because you're gonna see that's kind of our story here in 1 Samuel 4, that the Israelites are doing much of what my three and five-year-old uh, children were doing and what we do as well. So let's take a look. We're gonna read just the first 11 verses in 1 Samuel 4, and then we'll pray. Starting in verse one, chapter four, 1 Samuel. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped, encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and brought it from there, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Verse 5, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they had said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians and every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. See why Matt ran away this morning? Uh, let's pray, and then we'll dig into our text here this morning. Father, for these next few moments, God, I pray that you'd help us to focus. Our attention is likely divided in a lot of different places of things that we need to do, places to go today. But God, I pray that for these next few moments, you'd help us to focus and see how we need to make you our one true king today. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our guide and teacher this morning. Cause us to be more like you as a result of spending time digging into your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, it's interesting to note uh, that we've been talking about Hannah and Samuel quite a bit here in these first three chapters. But in chapter four, that very first verse where it talks about Samuel, that's the last time that you're going to hear the name Samuel until we get all the way to chapter seven. And so that kind of that narrative is going to take a back seat. Uh, but you're going to see how this story is really just picking up from where we had just left off. Because if you remember from first Samuel three, do you remember last week? Okay, first Samuel three is all about the midnight call 
uh, that God gives to Eli. And I don't know if you recall what the message was that Eli, uh, I'm sorry, that God wanted to give to Samuel. Uh, But it's actually, we're going to take a look at it just for a brief second. It'll be on your screen. 1 Samuel 3, 12 to 14. This is what God wanted to tell to Samuel at the midnight call that we just talked about last week. It says, On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. That first verse that's lit on the screen there, verse 12 says, on that day. And what we just read in chapter four is that day. That's the day that is being referred to here where Hophni and Phinehas die. And what we didn't read later in chapter four, if you would keep reading, is that Eli also dies in that chapter. Matt talked about last week how God gave them up to what they wanted, that they wanted nothing to do with the sacrificial system being done God's way. And so their natural choice that they were making was to face God's judgment apart from there being an adequate sacrifice. And this was the result. We talked about that God is still our one true king, even though Hophni and Phinehas and Eli all succumb to God's judgment. So though we're taking a break from the life of Samuel, you can see that our passage today is really just that, 1 Samuel 3, coming to fruition. And so what I want to do is we want to take a look at our passage, chapter 4, and I want to break it down into three different parts. And those three parts are the right question, that the Israelites ask the right question, their wrong response, and then we'll take a look at what the result was, which was quite unexpected. So let's start with uh, the right question. Hopefully you can kind of picture this, this scene. We have the Israelites and the Philistines. They are encamped opposite of each other. We don't really get a whole lot of detail as to why they are in this battle, and I'm not sure that it really matters, but we find out pretty quickly in verse 2 uh, that when the battle happens, Israel is defeated, and they lose 4,000 people, one battle, one day, one shot, um, and that's a lot of people to lose in a battle. And when they get back to the camp, they ask a really, really good question. And I would argue it's the right question that they were to ask. And it's in verse 3. It'll be on the screen highlighted behind me. They ask this question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Notice how it does not say, why did the Philistines defeat us? It says, why has the Lord defeated us? It doesn't say, why has God used the Philistines to defeat us? It just says, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? As if to say, we recognize that this was a result of God's doing. It's not an achievement of the Philistines. It's not because the Philistines are better. It's not because they're stronger. God, why did you do this in this situation? Um, And as I was preparing for this morning, I was trying to figure out Think through all the times that the Israelites have lost battles in the Bible. And I don't have time to go into all of them this morning, but what I would submit to you is it was a result. When they lost battles, it was a result of God's judgment of sin on the people, on the Israelites. And I'll just use one kind of example. It's a lot of examples tucked into one. But if you recall that this is coming out of the book of Judges and the time of the Judges, and do you recall the cycle of what happens in the book of Judges? that the people fall away from God in sin, that God hands them over to an enemy, likely meaning that they lose some sort of battle. In their oppression of being under a different uh, somebody else, they recognize their sin, they repent of it, and then they come back to God, and then the cycle just continues over and over and over again. 
And notice there, again, it was God's judgment on them to be handed over to the enemies. Even think about the book of Joshua. Joshua uh, in, in that book, God gives the, uh, the, the Israelites a great victory at Jericho, but literally one page later, they are defeated at Ai. Why? Well, it's again because of God's judgment on Achan's sin. And you can go remind yourself of all of these stories um, at a different time. But again, it's God's judgment on them. And so they are asking the right question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, in a minute, we're going to go look at what their response was, which I've already hinted was the wrong response. But before we look at the wrong response, I want to answer the question for them. Like, what, was the, what was the right response? What should they have thought about uh, before we look at their response? And the good news is it's simple. God doesn't leave us wondering. We've seen this coming to, uh, like this tracking through what we've read already in 1 Samuel. Back in chapter 2, we saw that God had prophesied that Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day as a result of their sin, that they had been stealing from the sacrifices, that they were sleeping with people at the temple. They had no interest in following God. And then in chapter 3, we saw the midnight call to Samuel, that Samuel then relayed that information to Eli that this was going to happen. And Hophni and Phinehas are just two examples of what's happening in Israel as a whole. Israel had walked away from God. Um, we talked about even last week that the book of Judges ends with the verse that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God's mercy and patience with Hophni and Phinehas and all of Israel had come to an end. Uh, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And Hophni and Phinehas and Israel as a whole refused to humble themselves so God opposes them and brings judgment in the form of this battle where they lost. And so now we want to look at, okay, that's, what, that's why God's doing this. But what was their response to the question? So again, they ask the right question. It's the right question. God, why have you done this to us? And yet, you're going to see here that they had the wrong response. So let's look at verse 3 again. I was just stuck. I read this verse and just stared at this for quite a long time. I'm going to read verse 3 again, just picking it up right where the question uh, is that they asked. It says this, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Did you catch that? That all of a sudden they're asking the right question and literally there is no recorded pause, no pause at all between that question mark and their decision of what they're going to do next. Let us fix it. Let us take the situation into our own hands. Let us attempt to manipulate the scorecard in our favor. Those two words, let us, just stuck out to me as I was preparing for this morning. And so while they ask the right question, they never wait long enough, never consider deep enough what the right answer was, and instead they make a tragic mistake. Remember that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And if you think about it, were they humble in any way in their response? Did they run to God and recognize their sin and own it and repent of it? No, quite the opposite. Let us fix it. Look at that next phrase after the comma, that it may come among us and save us. Just so much arrogance. And how are they going to fix it? That it may come among us. What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the ark. 
Okay, and so what is the ark? In case you're not familiar, the ark is really just a box, but it's a really, really important box throughout the Old Testament, okay, because the box was a visible sign of the holy presence of God. It was the focal point of God's presence among his people. And so essentially, they are assuming that if they just drag this symbolic presence of God, they just drag God into this battle, that he is going to have to assure them victory, that they are definitely going to win if they do this. And again, as I was trying to wrap my brain around this, I was thinking to myself, like, when we read that, you're like, oh, this does not sound like this is going to be a good idea. But why would they do this? Like, is there, is there evidence in Scripture, is there evidence in Israel's history that would show that, yeah, this, this might work because of some past precedents? And the answer is, yeah, there is. Um, and so I'm going, to, I'm going to give you two. There's probably others, but I'll just give you two really quick examples. In Joshua chapter 3, um, the Israelites need to cross over the Jordan River. And I don't know if you remember how they get across, but God's direction to them is to take the ark, the priests carrying the ark, they are to step into the water of the Jordan River. And as they step into the water, God says, I will stop the water from flowing and you can walk across on dry ground. It's the ark leading the way. Another example is in Joshua 6 when they are uh, the battle plan of Jericho, which is just a weird battle plan, okay, where they march around the city uh, every day for six days, and on the seventh day, they do it seven times. They yell, and the walls fall down. But what you'll notice in that chapter in Joshua 6 is that the ark is actually mentioned 10 different times, 10 times, as being a really focal point of why this battle plan is going to work. And so at a time where the people did not really know God, how easy for them to believe that it was the ark that is this magical box that's going to somehow assure them victory. But I'll just point out in those two examples that I just shared, it was God who instructed them to take the ark in that, in that way, to take it into the Jordan, to take it around Jericho. It was God instructing them to do that. And they were to take the ark as a visible reminder that it is God that's going to do this, not us. And if you think about our passage in 1 Samuel 4, is that what they're doing? Are they following God's lead here? Well, no. Does it sound like they're, doesn't it sound more like they're trying to force God's hand, they're trying to twist God's arm to get what they wanted? They are assuming that if they take the ark, God's got to deliver them because God has to protect his own honor. God has to protect his name. And what would, if something would happen to the ark, that would make God the loser, and that's just not possible, Right? A card game that I enjoy playing is a game that's called Rage. Uh, I don't know if that says something about me personally that I enjoy a card game that's called Rage. Uh, I'm not really sure. But in the card game, uh, there is one specific card that's called the Wild Card or the Wild Rage. And if you are holding the Wild Rage card, the Wild Card at the end, if a, if a trick comes around to you and you are holding that Wild Rage card, you can play that card. You can value it at whatever that you would like to and assure yourself victory in that particular trick of the game. And this is what they assume that if we just play the wild card here, we are assuring ourselves victory. And so hopefully I've convinced you that the leaders are not uh, responding correctly, but I think it actually gets worse. Uh, not only is it the leaders who think this is a good idea, but the ark shows up in the camp and what happens? They start screaming and excitement uh, that this is going to solve all the problems. In verse 5, it actually said that all the Israelites gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And I was thinking about, I was trying to like, like where, how far apart were they? Because we find out later that the Philistines heard them. It turns out that it's believed that they were about two miles apart, their two camps. So I was thinking, okay, what's two miles from here? 
Okay, and so uh, I, det- I found out that the giant across town is about two miles away. And so that would be us being so loud here that two miles away at giant, somebody walking out of the grocery store would be able to hear how excited, like think about how loud that would have to be and how excited that they all are about this, assuming that this is again just going to be all that they need. And I, again, the Philistine reaction was interesting to me that they hear the shouting and they find out, my goodness, this is the ark. And they start freaking out themselves as well. It's interesting that they actually feels like they almost have an equal amount of faith as the, as the Israelites do because they know the history. They remember the history of the Egyptians and the Exodus and the plagues. And they're thinking to themselves, we are in big trouble here because we know what's going to happen to us. Even look at verse nine. It says there, take courage and be men O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you, be men and fight. It's almost like they're saying, God, may we know we're going to lose. We have no chance here, but we are going to go down honorably. We're gonna, we do not want to become their slaves, and so we might die, but we're going to go down swinging here. And that leads us then to our unexpected results. The Israelites had an expectation. The Philistines had an expectation of what would happen, and yet... The result is an absolute disaster, but it's not what either camp thought was going to happen. Instead, we have three completely unexpected results. First, they lose the battle and 30,000 Israelites die. We started with 4,000 dying. Now we're up to 30,000 have died and they lose the battle again. Second, two of those people who, who died in the battle apparently were Hophni and Phinehas. The priests, the high priest's sons, now dead. And third, which is the most unthinkable of them all, is that the ark has been captured. It's interesting, if you keep reading the rest of this chapter, I already said to you that Eli actually dies in this chapter as well. So what happens is somebody runs from the battle, goes back and tells Eli what's happened. You've lost, you've lost 30,000 men. Your sons are dead. The ark has been captured. And it's actually upon hearing of the ark being captured that Eli falls backwards, breaks his neck, and, it's, and he dies. It's not that they lost. It's not the 30,000. It's not his sons. It's the ark that he's in shock of. Um, Phineas's wife, the exact same thing happens to her, that as she hears of her husband dying, they lost the battle. And it's not that she doesn't care, but it's the ark. When she hears about the ark, that's what causes her uh, to die as well. And so they are shocked to the point of death. And why? Well, wouldn't that mean that God lost? God's presence that was represented by the ark is no longer with his people. God himself has been captured. How is that possible? How could God ever let that happen? How are they going to get it back? Did God actually lose? And on the surface, you can probably feel uh, some of their questions and their anxiety about that. And if you come back next week, you'll hear the result of the ark and how that Uh, kind of plays itself out. But what I want to consider this morning as we think on this really challenging passage uh, is how does this, do you remember the thread that Matt has been talking about is woven throughout all of 1 Samuel? This is the question I was tackling as I prepared for this. There's the thread that Matt has been saying is all woven all throughout 1 Samuel, that God is reaching down into the hopelessness, turmoil, and dysfunction, and he is providentially leading people to worship the one true king. So this was my question. How does this story fit in with this theme? Because then maybe you can identify with this in your own life, that in this story, it doesn't really feel like God's reaching down into the hopelessness, turmoil, and dysfunction, but it actually kind of feels like he's causing it. 
And maybe you can even identify with that in your own life that, God, it doesn't feel like you are reaching into my situation, but it feels like you're causing the chaos and the dysfunction that's happening here. So how does this story fit with that theme? How does it point us to our one true king? And again, there's more to this story that will be covered next week, but I do think there's something here for us today. Um, It's pretty clear that the Israelites and the leaders, they treated the ark as if it was a good luck charm. Um, And I was thinking through some good luck charms, trying to find a good illustration of this today. And I came across, I know that sports people a lot of time have weird like good luck charms or things that they do to try to superstitiously help themselves be victorious. But one that I didn't know, which I found interesting, was actually about Michael Jordan. So in 1982, Michael Jordan won the national championship with the North Carolina Tar Heels. So my UNC fans out there, you're welcome for that little reminder this morning. Um, But what I didn't know about Michael Jordan is that apparently he believed that his practice shorts that he wore at UNC were lucky. And so what he did is his entire NBA career, which is kind of hard to imagine, uh, but his entire NBA career, he actually wore his UNC practice shorts underneath his Chicago Bulls shorts. And you'll notice, if you think about, like, think about the history of the NBA, if you know anything about the NBA, guys' shorts used to be pretty short in the NBA, and all of a sudden they became longer. You know why? At least part of it is because Michael Jordan needed to cover up his practice shorts, so he had to start wearing longer, baggier, and as the best player, and don't even start with me about who's the best NBA player ever, the answer is Michael Jordan, okay? Uh, and and he, he's the one who started this trend, And so it's interesting that even the greatest basketball player all time attributed some of his success to this good luck charm of his UNC practice shorts. Um, And obviously, again, the Israelites thought the same about the ark was their good luck charm. A commentary that I read for this morning described what Israel was doing, and I'm going to argue what we do sometimes like this, as rabbit foot theology, where we treat God as if he is just a good luck charm. The idea that we can somehow twist God's arm, we can manipulate God to get what we want. And I want to just think about this for a moment, uh, as we are the Israelites and we can do this. Uh, Here's just three ways that maybe this could kind of play itself out. Maybe you're a business person who you own your own company and you don't really see a whole lot of value in Christianity, but somebody has told you that, man, if you just pursue God, God has the ability to kind of like help to keep your company afloat. And so maybe you should uh, just consider that. Uh, maybe you're, uh, there's somebody who's sick and they're told by somebody, hey, if you, you can pray to God, God can heal you, right? And God, God, can, God has the ability to, uh, to heal. Or maybe you're a student. You've got a really hard test coming up or a big performance or whatever it would be. Uh, and so you think, well, man, maybe I should turn to God in prayer so that maybe he can help me remember all of the things that I've been studying to help me to do well. And notice in each of those cases, that type of relationship with God is only concerned about what I I can get out of it. And there's really not much else to that relationship. We're just using God to ultimately get what we want. And listen, if I treat God as if he exists to serve and meet my needs, right? If he exists for me, then he is not my one true king. He's not my one true king, that I am the one true king, that I believe that I'm the one true king. And suppose for a moment that this stool represents the throne of your heart. If that represents the throne of your heart, if you treat God as if he is your cosmic butler who exists to cater to you, to your comforts, 
to your success, to your health, your money, your career, your popularity, your grades, then he is not truly the one true king of your life. You are. You've put yourself on the throne, and we love sitting here on the throne of our lives. And we're so quick to be able to do that. And therefore, when we sit on the throne, everything needs to submit to me. And listen, that would include God somehow having to submit to me as well. Dale Ralph Davis said this about rabbit foot theology. He said, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him, not to submit to God, but to use him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, not repentance. And so practically, what does this look like? Because here's what I'm convinced of. I don't think anybody walked in the doors of of our church here this morning and thought to themselves, yep, I am king. I am on the throne. Everything needs to bow to me. Even God needs to submit to my will and my authority. Like I don't think any of us practically thought that as we walked through the doors this morning, but I'm convinced that functionally, we actually may do this more often than you may think. So what does it look like? Well, I think one possibility is it looks like we are trying to do the habits of a disciple without actually being a disciple first. I don't know if you remember back to our fall series on the discipleship journey. Um, We had a a number of people join our ministry since then, so I'm just going to kind of bring this back and remind you of this. I'd actually like for you, if you have your bulletin, you can grab it. And I don't know if you've ever like actually looked at the left-hand side. If you open it up and look where it says welcome on the left-hand side, Like, this is what we're all about here at Mount Calvary. We want every single person that walks in here to passionately pursue Christ. And if you look at that third paragraph there, it says, we believe that we passionately pursue Christ when we take these three important steps. One, become a disciple. We want every person to come to a saving faith in Christ and to identify with Jesus through baptism. Two, we want... Uh, to grow as a disciple. We want to help every person to grow as a disciple through habits. And then third, go and make disciples. We, we want every person to be a part of sharing the hope of the gospel in our community and around the world. And I think sometimes we can look to control or to appease God by getting the order of these things backwards. Back in the fall, we talked about how you cannot grow, the middle one there, you cannot grow as a disciple unless you have become a disciple first. If you read that grow as a disciple, it says we want to help you grow through habits. And so what were those habits? Well, those habits were study the Bible, pray continually, fast occasionally, worship together, connect in community, serve others, and confess sin. Can you see how you can actually confuse those things with rabbit foot theology? And I would actually, I'm actually ashamed to admit it, but I think early on in my walk with Christ, I actually believed in this rabbit foot theology. I didn't have language to talk about like that, but I think I did where I would, um, I, would, I would forget to have or didn't have my quiet time in the morning. I'd forget to pray, forget to read the Bible, and I would have this thought. I'd have the thought of, oh man, my day is not going to go well because I didn't do these things. Uh, I have a big test today. This test is not going to go well because I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't full, fulfill what I was supposed to do in the morning. Or maybe it's even worse, where I would think to myself, wow, I have a big something coming up. Maybe I got a big sporting event that I'm playing in. Maybe I got a big performance of some sort. Maybe I uh, have a test or I've got uh, whatever it would be, big decision to make. So I, because of that, I got to make sure I'm doing all the things here. I got to make sure I'm reading my Bible, praying, go to church, listen to Christian music, confess sin, serve as if 
It was my completing those things that was somehow going to put God into my debt so that he would have to follow through on his end of the deal. It's me trying to drag the ark into the battle. And I hope you hear that bad theology that if I do, 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 do these specific things, then God has to bless me because look at how awesome that I'm doing. Jesus kind of talks about this as well. There's some scary verses in Matthew 7 that speak to this. And these verses are actually why I'm a believer today. Uh, Early when I was in high school, um, I wasn't following Christ. I had a lot of intellectual knowledge about who uh, who he was. Um, I had gone to church my whole life. I would even equate myself to being Hophni and Phinehas, that I should know better. I had lots of knowledge, but I was not actually following, had a relationship with Christ. And I'm not saying I was doing all the habits, but I was generally a decent person. But here's what Matthew 7 says. This is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Those verses should scare you because just like Hophni and Phinehas, do you remember that they were described as worthless men because they did not know the Lord? Apparently, according to 1 Samuel, according to Jesus here, there is a way that you can do, 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 do things, but not actually have a saving relationship with Jesus. And 20 years ago, which feels like a really long time, that's what I realized. The speaker that night was talking from Matthew 7, and I had realized I was doing churchy, religious things, but I didn't know Jesus That was the night I saw just how much of a train wreck my life was. I saw how I put myself on the throne of my life, but I had made a terrible king. And I saw my sin and my desperate need for Jesus. And in that moment, I didn't need more habits. I didn't need need to go to church more. What I needed was to get off the throne. And what I did need was to put Jesus as his rightful place on my throne for him to be savior and king of my life. And, and hopefully, you know, as I say all this, hopefully you don't hear me saying that the habits are not important. Um, my goodness, no, that we spent months developing those habits. So I hope you don't hear that. But there is a huge difference in how you approach these habits. Okay? One approach that you can take to these habits is dragging the ark with you. As if you're going to do these things like the Israelites were doing, where you're going to drag the ark out by doing these things to put God into your debt. That if I want to be good with God, I need to get something from God. I need to appease him so I do these things. And listen, if you're king of your life, if you're king of your own heart here, you need to get all things to submit to you, and that includes God. And maybe you're thinking, I can do these things to somehow try to get God in my debt. So I'm going to, pray, I'm going to read the Bible to get God's attention and pray to have him give me what I want. I'm going to fast, go to church, get involved in life group, whatever it may be, with the goal of getting God to bless me. Or you can be at a place where Jesus is king of your life. And listen, if Jesus is king of your life, these habits take on a whole new meaning. A meaning. If you've come to a place where Jesus is king, then because of all that Christ has done for you and forgiving you, then I can willingly, joyfully, fully, and lovingly, yes, imperfectly executed, but I can do, I want to know God to the best of my ability, and how do I do that is through these habits. So now I can pray, or I can read the Bible. Reading the Bible isn't a chore, because I lovingly want to get to know my Savior, and I pray. Why do I pray? Because I know that He is in control of all things and not me. I fast occasionally so that I can remind myself that Christ alone is going to be the thing that satisfies me. 
I come to church to worship together so that we can corporately join in worship and singing together and sit under good teaching where I'm reminded weekly of my need for Christ. I connect in community because there's over 50 times in the New Testament that it says something about do something for one another, love one another, honor one another, serve one another. There's over 50 of those statements in the New Testament that I cannot live out on my own. I confess sin not to somehow get myself right with God because that's already been taken care of by Jesus on the cross, but I just want to be reminded and think through, have I drifted away from giving God my first and my best in all things? And I serve, not because I'm trying to earn something from God or whoever that I'm serving, but because I realize that Jesus has given me absolutely everything and so I can freely give to you. And hopefully you hear the difference about how we can approach these habits. I'm not trying to earn from God, not trying to put God in my debt, but it's out of an overflow of my love for him, recognizing him as king, that I do those habits. We can't get those backwards. The Israelites had it backwards in 1 Samuel 4. They wanted to manipulate God to get what they wanted. They treated themselves as the king, and God lovingly corrects them here in this story, and he's lovingly reminding them that he is their one true king. So where does that leave us this morning? Well, we gotta answer this question. Who is the king of your life, of your heart? Who is the king? There's two possibilities. Either it's you, where you have just made yourself so comfortable on the throne of your life. And listen, if it's you, I've said this a couple times, but everything and everyone must submit to you. And that means God somehow has to submit to you and you can try to manipulate him in many ways as the Israelites tried to do. Maybe you have no real relationship with God and today is the day where you repent of that. You get off the throne and you invite Jesus to take your spot. We repent of that. And we ask God to, uh, to help us to put Jesus in his rightful spot and experience his grace and forgiveness this morning. But listen, maybe you'll think to yourself, well, I think I do have Jesus on my throne, uh, on the throne of my heart. Well, then everything in your life, if he is king, everything in your life must submit to him. And how are you doing with that? How are you doing at allowing him to be king? I think, at least for me, how I can see my life so easily is I can feel the struggle of me trying to climb back onto the throne. Where it's like, I just want to, just, I can feel the struggle throughout a week where I just, I'm trying to get back onto that spot because I want control of something. Um, how are you doing with that? How are your habits today? You know, I need this for myself this morning. Am I, as a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, living in such a way that he is truly my one true king? Because if he is, then my life will accurately reflect that where I recognize he's in control and I willingly submit to him. So I'm going to pray here in a moment, and then the band's going to come up and they're going to sing the song, Amazing Love, You Are My King. And as we sing, I just want you to be reminded of what Christ did for you on the cross, that it is amazing love. And then when we get to the bridge, we declare corporately together that truly Jesus is the king of our lives. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this reminder that you are our one true king. God, I pray that as we consider that you are one true king, that we would willingly and joyfully submit to you, knowing that you are a good, good king. God, I pray if there's somebody here who has not made you king of their life, that they would recognize uh, their need for that this morning, that you'd convict and break them of that. Um, God, I pray that, uh, that we would all realize that you are the only one who makes a good king and that all of us, regardless of where we find ourselves this morning, would put you as king of our hearts 
in lives. God, help us to live out these habits in such a way that it just showcases and it's an evidence of our love for you because of what you've done for us. God, and as we sing this song, may we just be once again reminded of how miraculous it is that you have loved us to the point where you died for us. And so as a result, we jointly say that you are our king. We love you and we're thankful for your word this morning. Amen.